Welcome to KGOU's How Curious. I'm Rachel Hopkin, and today's story features a local girl with a belter of a voice, several hippopotamuses, some zoo history, and a hit song. The Jonas Brothers sometimes perform it in concert, and Leanne Rhymes, no less, recorded it a few years back. Only a hippopotamus but by far the best-known version remains the one cut by a young Oklahoman named Gayla Peavy in 1953. Despite the maturity of her voice, Gayla was just 10 years old at the time, and she'd already been singing professionally for several years, first around Oklahoma, and then for national audiences via NBC's Saturday Night Review. It didn't take long for a Columbia record scout to sign her up. Mitch Miller was the A&R man, and uh, the first song that he brought to me to record was I Want a Hippopotamus for Christmas. Luckily, it was a really good song. Gayla never met its composer, John Rocks, but she appreciated his skill. It's surprising the interesting chord changes and chord progressions that aren't typical in a novelty song. Not only that, but Mitch Miller took Gayla's own stylistic suggestions seriously. I'm the one that came up with the hippopotamuses. No crocodiles, no rhinoceroses. I only like hippopotamuses. And that scooping thing of hippopotamus, that was me. And at the time, the night show that everyone watched, it was the Ed Sullivan Show. Amy Stevens was formerly an educator with the Oklahoma City Zoo and has written several books about the institution. I met her along with Candice Reynolds, the zoo's PR director. So Ed Sullivan invited her to come and sing the song on his show. Well, Gayla went in and not only did she sing, but she danced and marched around and belted out this song and was just as charming as could be. Well, Julian Frazier, our zoo director, said, that will sell. <laughs> so we yeah, need a hippo. He was like, we need to get that little girl a hippo. And they kicked off this big promotional, send your pennies in. So people did. And all the local businesses really got into it. So by Christmas Eve, they had enough money. They bought a live hippo. Her name was Matilda and flew her in. Matilda came from New York Central Park Zoo. And presented her to me as a Christmas gift. And of course... The zoo was nice enough to provide housing for her. <laughs> I wonder what they would have done if you said, OK, thanks very much. I'm taking this hippo with me. <laughs> oh, that would have been really uh, crazy, wouldn't it? The song is a little deceiving. You know, there's lots of room for him in our two-car garage. Not true. And my mother made sure that we didn't do that. <laughs> and then they invited the community to come out on Christmas Day to see their new hippo. And even though it was snowing, 10,000 people showed up that afternoon and stood in line outside to get their, you know, 30-second look at Matilda the Hippo. Matilda was by no means the Oklahoma City Zoo's first celebrity animal. Its earliest stars included elephants Luna and Judy. Indeed, zoos around the world already had a long history of using these so-called charismatic megafauna to draw in crowds. They needed to. After all, animals can be very expensive to maintain. In fact, modern public zoos like the one in OKC have roots in bygone displays of wealth by European royals. 
Dan van der Summers is an environmental historian who's written about zoo history. Public zoos in Europe emerged out of the princely menageries of the 16 and 1700s to have a, like a tiger or elephant on display in your kingdom, showcase your power, your empire, your wealth, etc., etc. So when the nation state rose in Europe, slowly, one at a time, these menageries got donated to the public nation state. And rather than being funded by the coffers of the prince or princess, they were funded by public tax dollars. When the London Zoo opened in 1828, much of its collection came from the royal menageries of Windsor and the Tower of London, and Europe was dotted with equivalent institutions. And despite subsidies, they still needed to pull in a paying public. Therefore, welcome in 1850 Obeisk, arguably history's first celebrity hippo. Obeisk was a hippo traded by the Ottoman Viceroy of Egypt to the British Consul General in, in England for some hunting dogs. And very quickly, then the British Consul General donates Obeisk to the London Zoo, where almost instantly he himself will double the ticket sales of the London Zoo, even more than double. This kind of ushers in the cult of celebrity where like having a celebrity zoo animal sells tickets, brings in money, brings in audiences. I mean, a base becomes so common that his name is used as advertisements for all sorts of things. Like what? What could a hippo advertise? Oh, there's like these anthropomorphic images of Obase standing on two feet, dressed up as a gentleman. Print media is just filled with children's rhymes and songs. For example, on the cover sheet for the score of the Hippopotamus Polka, which was composed in his honour by L. St. Mars, Obeisk is depicted as standing upright, wearing a suit, and is hand-in-hand hand with a young lady. And thanks to a website called hippocollective.com belonging to filmmaker Alan Franks, I was able to find a rendition of the tune performed by Alan's aunt, Gail. When Obeisk arrived at the London Zoo in 1850, there were no equivalent institutions in the US. But by the time he died almost 30 years later, several had been constructed very much along the line of European models. The very first American zoos had grandiose plans. The Philadelphia Zoo, Cincinnati Zoo, the National Zoo. They actually set out to establish large zoos like the ones in London or Frankfurt. However, once that process got going, the city park that turns into a zoo just explodes all around the United States. And that's exactly what happened in Oklahoma City. Here's Amy Stevens. Wheeler Park was a lovely, beautiful place for people to go and spend their Sunday afternoons or whenever. And someone donated a deer to the park and it became a sensation. And you're thinking, really, a deer? Well, at the time, deer were almost extinct. And it was drawing people from across the country and so the mentality of oh people like to see animals let's get some more and the farmer who was having a fox that kept eating his chickens decided oh I'll donate a native fox to the zoo they were very quickly calling it a zoo and it was mostly native animals it was a few years before they started bringing in some exotic things this got me wondering what makes a zoo a zoo I asked Dan if he happened to have a working definition well, good question. I guess I'll say how zoos defined it is that they were institutions for education, for science, uh, for entertainment, and for conservation. 
And those four missions tied together rebranded animal collections as zoos and also separated zoos from circuses as well. But they did have kind of a older history of collecting and showing animals that was also central. And exotic animals, as we've already heard, were a very important part of that, but also presented numerous challenges. Exotic animals were very, very expensive. They were hard to come by and they were hard to care for. So it took zoos a while to like develop the skill set to take care of wild animals. Fortunately, by the time Matilda arrived in Oklahoma City, the zoo here, which had now moved to its current Lincoln Park location, was able to draw on decades of accumulated hippo care knowledge. Here's Candace again with Amy. Matilda lived a very long life here at the Oklahoma City Zoo. She did have a mate, Norman. Together they had nine offspring. And considering they're endangered species, the fact that they had that many babies is really important yes, to animal conservation. Yes, the, yeah, the population. Those offspring were sent to other zoos, often to become part of local breeding programs. Unlike Obesk, who was captured in the wild, most zoo animals today are captive bred. And there have been other changes in zoo trends. There has been a push across the last several decades for zoos to keep fewer animals, and certainly across the last half centuries to have much larger enclosures. This is the case with the Oklahoma City Zoo. In the 1990s, it was decided that it should focus on what Candice Reynolds described to me as the ABCs, i.e. apes, bears and cats, and to create for them specially designed naturalistic settings. Meanwhile, Matilda and Norman were relocated to a zoo in Florida. Very sadly, Matilda died en route. She was by then very elderly by hippo standards. Fortunately, Norman did make it and actually went on to father several more offspring. There are no longer any hippos at the OKC Zoo, but there are plenty of other animals to see, including in its Oklahoma Trail section, which, rather in a return to its origin, showcases flora and fauna native to the state. And speaking of native Oklahomans, what of Gayla Peavy? Like some zoo animals, especially in earlier times, she also found the public attention hard to bear, so much so that even attending school became almost impossible. In addition, she had no say in the songs Columbia gave her to record, though despite being only 10, she knew what suited her voice and what didn't. I like the melody that you can really have a range and to have some dynamics so you can really belt out the chorus, that kind of thing. Luckily, the first song that I Want a Hippopotamus for Christmas was just a great song, but subsequent songs, in retrospect, I wish that, you know, we had said, no, these are not really good songs. Are you able to name any of the songs that you really didn't like? Oh my goodness, I almost all the songs that were brought to me after a hippo song were just awful. Kitty in a basket and wish I was a whisker on the Easter bunny's chin. I feel like the title alone of that last one should have relegated it to the rubbish bin. In any case, Gayla stopped singing professionally. Given that her rendition of the hippo song is now a classic, she does occasionally make public appearances, but otherwise rarely refers to her early fame. Her husband, on the other hand, is a different matter. Cliff, wherever we are, he'll strike up a conversation with somebody and he'll say, have you ever heard the song, I Want a Hippopotamus for Christmas? And then most people say, oh yeah, I know that song. And my husband says, well, that's my wife. She sang that when she was 10 years old. And I used to get after him because it was embarrassing to me. But when he was very, very, very sick and in the hospital about five years ago, I said, Cliff, if you make it, 
I'll never complain again when you tell people I sang I want hippopotamus for Christmas. You can say it all you want to. Well, he did survive, and now I have to just let him say whatever he wants to about it, and that's fine because it makes him feel good. Oh, my goodness. Thank goodness. It's probably because he wanted to have all those extra opportunities to brag about his wife that pulled him through. I think it did. I honestly think that got him through and he's fit as a fiddle now and happy and healthy and everybody he runs into, hey, have you heard that song? I want it bottomless for Christmas. (laughs) And I have to just stand back and just let him talk. Goodness, what a relief to be able to end this episode and this series on a happy note. Thank you to all of today's contributors and to How Curious's listeners. How Curious will be back in 2024, but if you want something to listen to in the meantime, we have a back catalogue of almost 50 episodes. Look for them where you get podcasts or find them online by looking for KGOU and How Curious. How Curious is a KGOU public radio production. It's produced and hosted by me, Rachel Hopkin. Logan Layden is the managing editor and David Gray composed our theme music. As I said, this episode is the last of the current series, but if you have an Oklahoma-related idea for the next, please send it to us via curious at kgou.org. Did you know you are physically adapting to all your swiping, scrolling, and tapping? We're changing our bodies and what they're able to do through our habits. NPR's Body Electric, a special interactive series investigating how to fix the relationship between our tech and our health. Listen in the TED Radio Hour feed wherever you get your podcasts.